take a knee, take a seat, grab a brew, and listen in. This is the Reorg Podcast. Here we are, episode 17. This episode's guest is Kent Carlson. So Kent served 23 years in the US Army as a field artillery officer. Uh, His first six years he was enlisted and then he did the transition to become an officer through OCS. He talks about that and how that process was. He then goes, also talks about career, um, which is quite quite good for, you know, for, I found it quite interesting listening to it because I'm not really in tune with that over here in in the UK. Um, and then he also talks about his two deployments to Iraq. The first one being um, in the re- as a rear echelon uh, person. I'll, I'll, I'll be kind. And then the next, the, his next deployment, he was attached to the infantry uh, as a uh, fire support officer. And he talks about the two different tours and how different they were. But also talks about you know the, the shortcomings of the aftermath of war and the effects it's had on men in the states as well as the uk he also talks about what he's been doing since he's leaving and the the work he's done with various charities and organizations etc so we go into that so here it is episode 17 ken carlson i hope you enjoy okay and here we are um i'm with kent and kent's from the u.s army again so that's two two weeks in a row i've got a some someone from across the pond on um, if you just like to give a background about yourself, Kent, where you're from, where you grew up, uh, why you joined the army, et cetera, and when you joined the army. Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, Kent Carlson, I joined the army in 1992. Uh, I grew up as an Air Force brat. My dad was in the Air Force and uh, moved around quite a bit. Um, he didn't know what, what he did wrong because both his boys joined the army. Uh, he was a career Air Force officer. Um Lived all over the United States, lived overseas, lived in Israel, lived in Okinawa, Japan, spent some time in the Philippines for a short period of time. Uh, so I always knew I was going to be in the Army, uh, the mm-hmm. military. I read a lot of those kinds of books growing up, and it was always my interest. And so out of high school, I went to a two-year military college, um, New Mexico Military Institute. It's a small little school in Roswell, New Mexico. You know, Roswell's known for the aliens. Well, yeah. There's a small little military college there, too, and went there for two years. Um, And that was during the big drawdown of the Army. And so the Army was going from, like, you know, 1.9 million down to, like, 800,000 or something like that. And so they were offering a lot of scholarship cadets were getting pushed out. Mm -hmm. And uh, just dumb luck, I had broken my ankle during a field training exercise, and so I got released. Um. So I didn't, I didn't get my commission as an officer out of there. I went to the University of Mississippi, uh, where I was just a regular university student. And I joined the National Guard, which is kind of our version of the, uh, I guess you guys call it the Territorial Army. Yeah. You know, reserve forces and yeah. do some training one week in a month and uh, two weeks a year during the summer. I was, um, it was an artillery unit I joined. And when I graduated university in August of 1997, didn't have a job, didn't really know what I wanted to do. I said, hey, you know, I'll come on active duty. Um, 
So I went down to the recruiter and said, hey, I'm a National Guard soldier. I'd like to come on to the active duty forces. And at that time, the economy was doing pretty well. And so it was kind of hard to recruit. And they were all happy. They had a guy who walked in the door who was physically qualified. And uh, I went off to some additional training at Fort Sill, Oklahoma. I stayed in the artillery. Um, I, was, I, said, I was an enlisted guy. So our ranks go E1 through E9. So like an E1's a private. As an E4, I was a specialist equivalent, kind of like a corporal, mm-hmm. so to speak. Our ranks are a little structured, a little different. Um, and they said, where do you want to go? I said, well, I want to go someplace overseas. I want to go someplace with a lot, a lot of training going on. And I said, I'd like to go to Germany. And they said, well, we can't get you Germany. How about Korea? I said, sure. Sounds good. You know, so I went to Korea. Um, and uh, I got over to Korea and I showed up. I was in a heavy artillery unit, uh, 155 millimeter self-propelled unit. Um, we were up at Camp Casey, so about 12 kilometers off the, D- the DMZ, North mm-hmm. Korea. And uh, did a lot of training. Spent a lot of time out, out in the rice paddy areas, shooting live artillery fire, uh, supporting the maneuver. Um, a lot of, it was a... It was kind of a, I look back now compared to how the army was when I retired in the 17 and it was very wild and kind of crazy. You know, from the, from the UK perspective, Korea's not quite big on our agenda um, with, with everything. How, how is going over to Korea? Um, obviously you're being closer to, to the, obviously the no man's land as it, as it were, <laughs> which is, yeah. um, what, what's that like being over there? Um, so 12 kilometers off the DMC, it was, uh, a base that was, as we said, kind of a wild, wild west in some ways. We had a lot of training. You were stuck on these bases during the days. There was what we called the Ville outside where lots of bars with lots of Filipino drinking girls that would, you know, talk to you for, if you buy them a drink and, um, that kind of environment. So it was kind of very crazy because you, everyone's geographically separated from their spouses. Mm-hmm. excuse me i wasn't married at the time but a lot of guys were and so you one year away from your family spent a lot of time in the field um you know we'd go out to the field for 35 45 days at a time um and just do different training um with different units and stuff like that we would uh the u.s forces at that time didn't have much actually up on the demilitarized zone a lot of that had been turned over to the uh, republican of korean army the rocks we called them and uh but we still had the joint security area where we had some americans up there they were they were jokingly called the monks um their motto was uh you know stands alone because if the shit hit the fan they were the first ones who were gonna get steamrolled everybody knew it um so you'd run into those guys the jsa guys they their motto was you know they'd scream out stands alone we'd say sleeps together you know that kind of unit humor stuff like that but uh you go up there to uh, training areas. I remember we went up to a training area um, and we were doing a uh, Mark 19, which is a, you know, 40 millimeter grenade launcher. It's kind of like a machine gun for grenades, grenades, yeah, yeah. big, big boxy thing. Very devastating weapon. We went up to a live fire range up there and uh, about oh, 1500 meters off the demilitarized zone. So you could look from the the overpoint the the OP where we are at, and you could see the DMZ. You could see the South Korean units. You could see different units in battle positions and stuff like that. And there was that was still when the loudspeakers were up, mm-hmm. and so the propaganda from both sides was going back and forth. And you'd hear the South Koreans and the, the North Koreans had a big famine going on at that time, 
And so the South Koreans would be telling them what they were eating for dinner. You know, <laughs> we're having this, we're having that, and you know, all this. And, you know, at this time we've been hearing the South Korean or the North Korean army was like a bowl of rice a day kind of thing per soldier, you know, and then the, and, and so we're laughing at that. And then suddenly um you hear the North Korean speakers going, and uh, you know, we're we've got these Korean soldiers attached to us, we call them katusas, Korean augmentees to the United States Army. And they're Korean soldiers that are embedded in your unit. So you have instant translators, and they serve with you for their entire two-year enlistment. They're all draftees. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're like, hey, what's going on? You know, what are they saying? And they were like, oh, they're letting us know that they see us. And, you know, that the soldiers of the 2nd Infantry Division, which I was in, you know, enjoy your life fire range, because even with all that training, we will kill you. Like, <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> you know? And then you'd have these balloons that would fly across the DMZ that they would put these little paper spinners in them, we call And so these balloons would fly over and they'd pop. And these little paper um, propaganda notes, it's like, you know, notes kids would pass in school would come raining out of the sky. And it would, you know, imperious dogs go home. It was really, you know, really deep, deep, deep literary prose yeah. that they would send across these things. Um, so it was, it was kind of wild that way. It was, it was crazy. You know, you go up there and then there was still shooting that was going on between the North Koreans and the South Koreans. Um, that was, you know, every day there was rounds that were exchanged, uh, usually not artillery fire, but you know, some guy get froggy and fire built to machine gun rounds across the DMC. Or mm-hmm. if a guy ran across the border, uh, to defect, um, from the North to the South, that would always cause problems. Um, we had the crab wars of 99 where we actually, kind of thought we might go to war with them or something mm-hmm. where the North Korea and South Korean fish, uh, Navy were shooting each other up over fishing areas. Mm-hmm. So we got activated there. We actually went out to our battle positions and occupied and they brought the go to war ammo and we sat out there and kind of like, Hmm, okay, what's going to happen? Nothing happened. We went back to our base and went out to the bars and got, you know, got lit up afterwards to celebrate that, you know, we're going to war. Yeah. Um, so it was, uh, I look back now, those were a lot of fun times, you know, it was, uh, a lot of, I learned a lot, um, had a lot of interaction with a lot of people. Um, and then from there I went to officer candidate school, uh-huh. uh, which we call OCS where I was commissioned as an officer in the artillery. Um, it's a 14 week school. As I said, it's, it's called OCS. Well, it stands for officer candidate school. We call it organized chicken shit school. <laughs> um, really it's basically just, you know, fuck a few for about 14 days or 14 weeks of stuff. So, so, so you, so you had already been in for a certain amount of time before. Mm-hmm. So, cause obviously, cause in the, in the British army, you, you basically join to be an officer or you join to be a regular. I think there is, yeah. there is, there is a way of going from a regular unless is less you actually get your commission through your warrant officer. But, it's mm-hmm. very rare that you would you would sometimes get recommended to go when you're a you know an NCO, but what how does it yeah. work in the states then? So you can get commissioned uh, multiple ways. You can actually go to like our version of uh, you can go to West Point, United States Military Academy, where it's a four year school kind of equivalent to Sandhurst, except it's just a regular university. So you come out of a university degree. Um, you can go to a regular university and participate in what's called Reserve Officer Training Corps, ROTC. We all call it ROTC. Um, and you do between two and four years there, depending what point you join. They, uh, they A lot of times they give you a scholarship and they'll pay for your school. Um, 
then you go to a summer camp where you're assessed to see if, and depending upon how your assessments, um, you can be commissioned that way and come in uh, that way. And so if you take a scholarship, then you're invariably going to owe them a couple years on the active duty to pay that scholarship back. Mm-hmm. Like the West Pointers, they owe five years. Most ROTC guys, it's one year for school, one year in the military. Um, and then you can do uh, OCS like I did, where you're an enlisted guy. Uh, if you have a good record, your unit recommends you, you go in front of a board, um, you submit your application. And uh, if they like your record and the board wants you, then you get offered uh, an appointment to OCS. And you show up there and it's at Fort Benning, Georgia, where the, you know, the home of the infantry is. And uh, it's an infantry-focused training. It's a lot of physical training, a lot of academic classes, a lot of just mundane, weird, like I said, we called it organized chicken shit, you know, like shining tiles on the floor with neutral shoe polish before an inspection <laughs> and shirts had to be folded a specific way, like super basic training. Yeah. And uh, very, very rigorous. Um, we did PT four times a day. So I came out of there in the best physical shape I'd ever been in my entire life. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and uh, when you get done with that, you're commissioned as an officer and you owe three and a half years of active duty service. Um, do, and so do, um... that, I already had six years, so. Right, so by by that time, is that is that the most common way officers go in, would you say? No, the vast majority of officers in the military go through university, the ROTC program. That's, West Point commissions probably eight, 900 guys a year. Um, ROTC commissions, the vast majority of it. And OCS is kind of the, the stop gap. The, they kind of plug holes that way. And so the number of classes they offer for OCS will vary based upon what their needs are. And so when I was there, that we had two companies and each company had about 120 people in a class and they were doing like four classes a year. At one point during the height of the, you know, the surge in Iraq and all that, I think they had four companies going and I think they were doing six classes a year. Mm-hmm. And so that's how they surge and plug the holes in Manning, so to speak. And your OCS guys, the vast majority of us go to combat arms. Infantry, armor, artillery, air defense, engineer. Um, there's not a whole lot of. Um, at the time, it was you know only men could go into the combat arms. Now you can have females go into the combat arms. Um, and uh, I mean, probably eighty percent of guys would go into the combat arms branches. And so I, I, I had a roommate um, who's actually taking over Fifth Special Forces Group. He was an SF guy. He was a Started first class, so very senior guy. Been in like 12 years, 12, 13 years. He was my roommate. But then my next door neighbor was a guy who'd been in three years who spoke, who spoke fluent Farsi. <laughs> mm-hmm. It was a military intelligence analysis, and the Army put him in their defense artillery, which made no sense. Right. You know, they spent all these years training him. He spoke this language fluently. They made him an air defense artillery officer. So you say after, after his three years were up, he got out, and he went to go work for the CIA. So, yeah. you know, it's it's not always the uh, most logical choice no, for how people well, get their, their I mean, commissioning branch. And then you, this was, what, this was 90, when was this? 2000. So 2000. I was commissioned in August of 2000. So I had six years of service at that point. I was, mm-hmm. uh, I was a sergeant, so I was an E5 sergeant, um, and I had been promotable to staff sergeant, which is the next rank above, okay. so an E6. Um, 
and I was scheduled to pin on my E6 rank in September, but I was commissioned in August, so I never actually got it on there. Yeah. So, you know. but I had six years of service at that point. So, all right, oh, nice. So, and then, and then, obviously, I've talked, I've talked to with with guests before who you know joined mm -hmm. in the '90s, and then you know, but it's it's less prevalent to what to to yourself would be in in the in the states. So, um, obviously. September 11 happened while you were serving. Um, yes. How was that for, for you? So I was actually at Fort Sill, Oklahoma, which is the home of the field artillery. It's in the middle of nowhere. Um, and I was in a dry cleaning store picking up uniforms because we had our uniforms that time. We used to starch them and all that stuff. Yeah. And I walked in there and this, and there's like five people in there and they're all staring at the TV screen in the corner. And right as the second plane hit, and we saw that. And so we're all looking at that, and we're like, well, shit, you know, that's not right. And then so we all grabbed our uniforms. And this was, there were cell phones around, but not really. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I was, uh, let's see, it's 2000. I was a second lieutenant still. So I was still a fresh officer. I'd come out of my training course. And I was in a unit that was kind of unique. It was a training unit. So we had 105 millimeter cannons, actually. The 119er is actually a British-made style light cannon. I think it's the L7, you guys called it. Um, and so I was at a training unit, so I knew that my unit wasn't going to get called up for this. But I had friends of mine who were in the 82nd Airborne and those guys, and I was like, all right, they're getting called up, no doubt. No doubt in my mind. And uh, so between the dry cleaner that was 15 minutes off the post and I grabbed my stuff and I headed back to the unit because I was like, well, this is going to be interesting. In that 15 minutes, the post had been locked down. And it took four hours to get on the post. And they were searching every vehicle. And, I mean, it was – I look back now, it was a good lesson in hysteria and overreaction. Mm -hmm. I think it's the best way to say it. It was kind of this – we didn't know what we were dealing with, and so we're just going to go extreme lockdown. And we had units out in the field doing artillery live fires that were not allowed to come back in that night. And they had armed guards on the base that were physically stopping American artillery units trying to come back into the training area with rifles and saying, no, sir, I have orders. If you go beyond this point for your unit, I am to shoot you. Are you serious? <laughs> I mean, we're in camouflage uniforms. We're towing artillery pieces. We're the United States Army. It was just... You know, I look back now and talk to my buddies and we're like, God, we were just such jackasses. It was just yeah. so overreaction. But the whole, I mean, the whole country did that. I mean, they yeah. landed aircraft. There was no airplanes flying. It was, and it was about that way for six months now. And before that, we had open posts where you could drive onto the military base if you were a civilian and drive around. That's never happened again. That's all the military bases to this day are still locked down. I mean, you have to go through a gate and show your ID card and state why you have business there and getting somebody on who's not in the military, you know, you have to coordinate for that, stuff like that. Yeah. So it was a big cultural shock. But I knew I wasn't going to war immediately because just the nature of the unit I was in. Uh -huh. but, uh, and then, you know, the next year, at that point, I was a first lieutenant. So I'd been an officer for two years and at that point everybody started to realize that hey something's going to happen with iraq mm -hmm. grumblings coming around people were talking about it um and i was in this training unit 
as I said, we were, so the average artillery unit, you know, cannons, rockets, missiles, you'll go out, cannon unit, you might shoot 3,000 rounds a year, which sounds mm -hmm. like a lot, but it's not for an artillery unit for training. I was in a unit where I personally, you know, was my, my little element fired over 20,000 rounds in a year, just because we were supporting all these different training elements to the schoolhouse of guys learning how to be fire supporters and stuff like that. And so, mm -hmm. uh, um, so when they asked for volunteers, Hey, who wants to go over to the, the, uh, heavy cannon units that we know are going to deploy to, uh, Iraq for the initial invasion. I was single. I raised my hand. Sure. I'll go. That's why I joined the army, right? You join the army to, uh, to train. And it's kind of like, you know, if some people had their entire careers, they never got a chance to go and go to the Super Bowl, so to speak, as we call it. And I had an opportunity and I had being in the army in the nineties, you had a lot of guys who'd been desert storm, you know, a lot of desert storm veterans who, uh, you know, there are four days of intense combat against the Iraqi army, but you know, they had been in the deserts of our, of Saudi Arabia for six months and they stayed there for, you know, months afterwards. So that was one of those things that in our army, when you uh, go into a combat theater, you get a combat patch, you wear it on your right hand shoulder. And so, kind of one of those things that when someone shows up you get around you know everyone's looking at each other you kind of it's almost like a resume on your uniform you're looking hey does the guy yeah. have air, is the airborne qualified does he have a combat patch you know what unit you know is your ranger tab that kind of stuff and it's you know and your, your previous um podcast you said you had a guy who was a ranger and so yeah. that's tab check-in that's a big deal in especially in the infantry and the artillery it depends what unit you go to um i didn't I went to ranger school, but I didn't graduate. I got hurt. Um, and I never went back and I didn't need a tab, but if you're an infantry guy and you don't have a ranger tab, you're getting a second look from a lot yeah. of guys. I mean, they, they do a tab check, and, hmm. but you know, not having a combat patch, people will look at you, even though if you maybe have gotten your combat patch and you never had anyone shoot at you, the most dangerous thing you dealt with was, you know, a bad meal out of the chow hall. Um, they'd still look at you. Do you have a patch? Something like that. And so that was something a lot of people were very, very aware of. And then later on, 2007, 2008, if you didn't have a patch, people were like, where the fuck you been hiding? Mm. You know, because the unit rotation was so, it, it was, you know, it, it was a very tough rotation system. People were there, back, there, back, there, back. And, Someone didn't have a patch. Unless you were brand new to the army, it was all right. Where did you hide out? So it's mentality change. And just just going quickly on what what one thing I want to learn is in in American in American military, you get tabs on your lapels or mm -hmm. where where the this, it seems like someone's been in for a, about a year and they've got like ten fucking sashes. Ten ribbons. Yeah, what we only yeah, get one so, for every medal for every tour in the UK. So what? To, what? Just briefly explain why it's it's actually something that a lot of us talk about, and it's it's become worse. And we have a ribbon for everything, and different branches have everything. I mean, so you join the army, you get your first ribbon is the the army service ribbon, right. and it's this rainbow colored ribbon, and it's your first one. And we all jokingly call it the gay pride ribbon because it looks like the pride flags. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it's, you can get a ribbon for that. You can get, um, if you go overseas on an overseas tour and as long as you're there 10 months, three days, you get an overseas service ribbon. 
And so I remember when I joined, you would see officers, you know, and my boss who had my first battalion commander, I think he had three rows. And a lot of that was just the kind of, I was here, I did this training, or um, we give Army Achievement Medals that you award to soldiers uh, for doing something good at different levels. And there's the Army Commendation Medal. It's the next level up. There's the, mili- the uh, Meritorious Service Medal. So we have these awards that you can give to guys for doing an outstanding job. Um, and you would see guys, and they would have one Army Achievement Medal, which we call the AM, and, you know, or one ARCOM. And some of these general officers you'd see, they have three, ro- three rows. Nowadays, you can run into an E5 who's been in six years, and he's got four rows stacked up mm. because it's, yeah, it's become one of those things that a lot of us talk about. It's a lot of bling. Um, there's tabs for everything. You go to jungle school, you get a jungle school tab. You go to ranger school, you get a ranger tab. If you're an airborne unit, you have an airborne tab that you wear while you're in that. Um, engineers have a sapper tab. And... You know, other branches like the Marines laugh at us. They they wear airborne wings and they wear a couple of pilot wings. That's about it. Um, it's it, it's it's one of the quirky things about the American military. It's it's yeah. So you can run into guys that you know, been in ten twenty or like me as an example. I was in twenty three years, including my National Guard time. I have more ribbons than Dwight D Eisenhower. You know. A five-star general in the United States Army ever had in his entire career. I just, it, it's it's kind of weird. Um, do you see your first? When was your first deployment uh, as in combat? Uh, I deployed in March two thousand three to Iraq. Yeah. Um, went into Kuwait or not Kuwait? I'm yeah, Kuwait. Went to Kuwait, hung out at uh, one of the big camps there, Camp Pennsylvania, for a while, and then we got we chased up into Iraq, and but we missed the the ground war itself. Um, Mm -hmm. We didn't get involved in any of the heavy fighting or anything like that. By the time we got up into Iraq, um, it was all pretty much done at that point. So I was in a self-propelled heavy cannon unit. And at that point we were a a unit with, with capabilities, but not a job. I was at that point, I was, um, you know, I, I was up on the uh, battalion staff. I was uh, a nighttime battalion fire direction officer. So if the artillery cannons had been firing at night, I would have been controlling their fire. Mm-hmm. But uh, about two months into that, we had our uh, first casualties. And uh, we had an OP that got picked off by some Fedeen. The mm-hmm. Fedeen were still around. That was in May of '03. Um, we had a weird mission that at that point we had... We were basically being set up to collect all this enemy ammunition, you know, because all over Iraq, there was all this ammunition from the Iraqi army. It was everywhere. And uh, we were trying to collect this stuff up and destroy it. And so my unit, because we were an artillery unit, we had a lot of big, heavy trucks. We got sent out to a rock quarry where they had found a whole bunch of uh, ammunition had been put there by the Iraqi army and the Air Force. And we started collecting all this ammunition. Well, then we had explosive ordnance teams come in, and we would set up a giant perimeter, and we'd blow these things up, these huge explosions. Well, we had an OP set up, and we had a bunch of OPs set up around there to keep you know the civilians from wandering in there and getting blown up. Mm-hmm. And uh, a Fedeen cell, uh, we were outside Adishal, um, came through and watched one of our OPs and got him and snatched two of our guys and... Killed them. They were. We found out later on they were dead within 20 minutes. They had captured them, 
talked to them for a little while, decided they didn't know what they were going to do with them, shot them both. They took them down and buried the bodies in near Baghdad. And we did about a five-day search for their uh, for them in our area. And then they found them, you know, about five days later, they were dead. Uh, when that happened, uh, our battalion commander had been slated to come out. So he came out, not he didn't get fired, but uh, that kind of encouraged a little bit. Um, and our intel officer um, was moved over to another role and a bunch of positions were moved around and no one really, no one got fired. It was not looked at that way, but it was just kind of a shakeup. Mm. And so I was made the intelligence officer. And so that was kind of a, I mean, I was just a dumb artillery guy. I didn't have any formal intelligence training. The only thing they knew is that I was a gun nut. And so I knew all about the AK-47s and AKMs. And I could drive by and go, that's a T-55. That's a T-72. Oh, look, that's, you know, that's an SA-3 surface-to-air missile. And so the colonel was like, I'm going to make him the intel officer because he's a weapons geek. There's so a, the, military, the military um, equivalent of a train spotter. Of a what? Of a train spotter, okay, or bird, yeah, or, or a bird watcher. Yes, yeah, <laughs> and so uh, it actually worked out because um, we were out in this rock quarry for about six months, and it was miserable. I mean, it was brutal out there. Uh, guys were getting leishmaniasis infections from all the bugs, and it was the, hot, the heat out there. We were working in these um, rock pits, um, storing all this ammunition, and then hauling out to destroy it. And, very dangerous work. I mean, I, we we had a a Zoom reunion with this this unit I was in uh, about November of last year, and we were talking about it and how we didn't kill get people killed because I mean we would have Willie Pete ammunition come in that started smoking. Mm. The guys just up throwing in a fifty five gallon drum of water. I mean, uh, two July we had the pits actually caught fire and exploded, and so we sat out there on our berms of our our fire base that we'd set up and watch the rock quarry explode and go off. It was early 4th of July fireworks for us. Um, you know, 4th of July being our big independent day holiday, lots of fireworks traditionally. Um, you know, and that was right as before the insurgency had really kicked off. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, we were still driving around in one or two little vehicle convoys. Nobody had armored vehicles. At least, I mean, our only armored vehicles were our self-propelled howitzers, and we didn't drive them around too often because mm-hmm. they're not like a tank. Um, and so we we drive around, and I I had a lot of freedom. We had a guy, uh, one of our captains was from uh, Sudan originally, and he spoke fluent Arabic. Mm-hmm. So we drove around. We tried to figure out what was going around us because we would have, uh, you know, just we'd start, we started to get mortar fire. We started to get some rocket fire. There were other bases getting attacked and we were out in the middle of desert and this, we were, you know, 20 foot burned walls that had been pushed up around our little tents and stuff like that. And, um, driving around and they started to find mass graves in that area. Al-Dajjal, Iraq is actually what Saddam Hussein was tried for and executed by the Iraqi, the massacre out there. Well, we were using these big, bulldozers we dig these big trenches and fill them with all these 14.5 millimeter ammo and small arms ammo and all this stuff and we dump a bunch of jpa fuel in there and burn them and they just i mean hundreds and hundreds of thousands of rounds of ammunition we burned well we started digging these we started finding mass graves and uh, you start pulling up these desiccated bodies from you know the early 90s during the a lot of the shiite reunion that uh shiite um 
insurrection that he put down very harshly after the Gulf War. Um, you know, so we were out there and watching it. I mean, I remember we used to go down a route. Um, we named our routes, our roads after beer. And uh, we had Route Miller. And I remember going down Route Miller, and we drove that up that thing all the time to talk to this infantry unit that was near us. And uh, never had an issue. And then one day, we're driving along, and boom, something went off behind us. And that was my, my first contact, so to speak, um, where I was like, the hell is that? And then we realized that it was an IED. That, um, but that was the beginning. That was very infancy. This was not mm-hmm. the sophisticated IEDs that I ran into in 2007. This was some guy found an artillery shell and ran some blasting wire to it and drove by and saw us and clicked it off and didn't have his timing right. You know, went off about 125 meters behind us. Yeah. And that was the first time you're kind of like, holy shit, someone just tried to kill us. But that was it. There was no tank coming over the horizon shooting at us or, you know, guy on a rooftop or something like that. Um, that kind of stuff started later. I, I mean, our our first... Our, well, actually, no, that wasn't my first contact. My first contact was a suicide bomber at oh, the gate. So before we went out to the... Uh, the rock quarry, we were on uh, Balad, which is a big base there up in uh, there. And they ended up becoming known as Mortaritaville because they were always getting mortared and rocketed. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, we were we were at that base. And we were kind of in, we were an artillery unit without a mission. We had all these trucks. We had all these guys. And uh, then while we were waiting for the mission that came up, we're going to start improving our facility, right? And you got all these Iraqi contractors and they want to sell you everything they have. And so mm-hmm. we're going out to the gate and you can go out to the gate there and you can meet up with these guys. And, um, you know, we were buying air conditioning units that we could put onto the buildings. Cause you know, this is, this is like, you know, May of 2003. So it's quite warm. Yeah. And, uh, I remember we went out to the gate myself, a couple other guys, and they were the page and they had the money and I was just going out there because it was an opportunity to get off, get out and go. We went out to the gate and we we're talking with our guys and about 20 yards away, we heard a boom. And on the other side of the berm from us, there had been a Bradley, a Bradley fighting vehicle. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of these Iraqis who had been in this big crowd that was trying to garner their way into the gate had a suicide vest. And he went up and hugged this, uh, this Bradley and detonated it himself and he spread his guts all over the Bradley um and uh I remember dirt and chunks of flesh coming down raining it was like all over the place and you know everyone scatters we come back together and the infantry units trying to figure out what's going on I remember the lieutenant was there yelling and uh I remember I had a digital camera and they're like hey anybody got a camera anybody got a camera I was like yeah I got a camera so he's like, I need to take pictures of this. And so, you know, and you can still smell the smoke. And then we kind of figured out what was going on. So I kind of got drafted in to take pictures of this. And it was just this guy's guts was all across the front of this Bradley. And uh, his head was lying there on the ground next to the front sprocket. And the back part of it was completely stripped off of flesh. But the front part of his face was perfectly untouched. His, mm-hmm. his eyes were open in shock. I remember that. And, uh, but the rest of them was gone. And, and I kind of noticed that in the future, we hit, had some V bids, uh, vehicle borne IEDs, you know, car bombs and some suicide bombers. You would tend to find heads, but not a lot of it else. 
Yeah. And so that was my first experience with actual, that's that, I would call that my first contact. And then yeah. after that, it was the IED and rolling down the road. We're kind of like, what the hell was that? <laughs> you know, and it's kind of shocked us at first, but so, didn't so, get shot at for a while. So that, um, let, let's go on that. Mm-hmm. When, when that happened. So this mm-hmm. was, you, you, you would, I guess you're in a, in a, what you would deem a safe place you weren't safe but you know you were yeah. set back you you guys are getting used to the, your habits were me with the locals getting stuff like that mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden bam you know some this yeah. suicide the suicide bomb goes off your your i guess how, how did you feel at the time you just gone like did that change your mindset from from that day on when when you're out there because um, I guess, yeah it, it up until then, we'd had a couple little mortar attacks on the base, and we'd heard the boom, but we hadn't had anyone get wounded or anything. It's a big base, um, and we we were seeing stories, we were reading the contact reports that were coming through, but we hadn't had anyone get hurt. We would go off the base to do some little things. Like I said we were kind of a unit that was kind of waiting to find out what we could do to help. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we all came back, and you know we've got little pieces of blood on our uniforms. We had only issued two sets of. Uh, desert camouflage uniforms you're trying to get that off and talking about it in in a unit of you know 450 dudes that nobody's seen contact yet for the most part outside of some of your desert storm guys i don't want to say you became popular but everyone was asking about it mm-hmm. and then you know that was kind of the question of all right how, how'd that work out um and it was kind of that thought of, you know, and then about an hour later, I was kind of like, you know what? That guy tried to kill us. I mean, he wasn't targeting me directly, but he knew he was going to, he was going to try to blow up that vehicle and kill as many Americans as he could. And that was my first thought of, all right, this ain't a joke. Mm-hmm. You know, a, a suicide bomber is not, he's an indiscriminate killer. He's trying to kill as many people as he can. And, then I thought about that. I was like, you know, this guy had a lot of commitment that he's willing to sacrifice his life to try to kill some people. And in, in the end, he didn't kill anyone. I mean, he sprayed his guts across his vehicle and, you know, scared the hell out of a lot of us and mm. gave us a pause. But at that point, then you started looking at crowds. Mm. And it was a shakeup. And we started talking about that, you know, the next day. Our colonel's like, all right, we need to look at what we're doing and how are we making ourselves vulnerable? Because that point people at other units were having these big powwows with the local shakes and the shakes were trying to establish their, you know, their influence. And we're trying to figure out who's the actual moneymaker in the different areas. And so now you're like, okay, how are we going to make sure we have security? So this guy underneath his, you know, robes isn't packing a suicide bomb mm. and going to wipe us all out. And that became a serious thought that I carried with me, you know, the remainder of that deployment, especially as an intel officer, I ended up meeting with a lot of these people. And that was something that always went through my mind. Mm-hmm. And what's the balancing act between, all right, I'm going to shake you down to make sure you're not packing something unpleasant, or but I'm also not going to disrespect you and show I don't trust you, even though most of the time I didn't trust them. Yeah. You know, it's that. So there's things you talk about and security and set up and try not to make yourself a large, juicy target. So. Yeah. It, it's interesting to hear because. You know, as as war develops and the, the the longer war goes on, the more incident happens. Like when I was in when I was in Afghan, we wouldn't let anyone come near us without lifting up their distash because we were yeah. checking. You know, and it was it was the tour before mine where 
you know, they had a kid, they had a kid with a wheelbarrow and was an actual IED. So, and it killed, I think, two lads and injured, I think it killed two or three lads from, from the, from their uh, patrol. So learning from that, anyone with us, we wouldn't even let kids, we would let no one near us or any, you know, they even try to put a donkey IED, you know, um, yeah, it's just, we had these big chow halls too. I mean, so we had Iraqis in the chow halls. Wow. And then in Mosul, I think it was 04, they had a guy get in there with a IED and a suicide vest and detonated in the middle of the chow hall and killed a bunch of Americans, wounded a lot of people. So it was a constant thing. And that's something that's always in the back of our mind. Yeah. 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 And then, so you're, you're a regular army. So your deployments were a year long. Yeah, so that, that deployment was 12 months. Um, and we went over there originally for the ground war. We were actually going to be with 4th ID and come in from Turkey and the, the northern front that never materialized because of politics. Mm. Um, and so originally we, we came over on, I think there were 90-day orders, we thought. But then we got over there, and I think everybody realized that, okay, this is going to be a lot harder to secure this country. And I'll make the argument we never secured the country. Mm. Um you know, one of our generals at the time, General Shinseki, got in a lot of trouble with the Bush administration in Rumsfeld because he said it'd take four or 500,000 people to secure Iraq. And he was proved right. Mm. Um, so they weren't going to let us go anywhere. So we went from 90 days, and then they said it's 180 days, and then it ended up being a year, uh, 12 months. And then my second deployment was 15 months. 55. Iraq. Wow. Yeah, that was rough. Wow. And uh, so that one, we went over there knowing that. It was going to be yeah. 15 months, but it still hurt. Um, my brother actually was in Afghanistan um, before my second deployment, and they were at 12 months. They had turned over their um, their FOB, their forward operating base, little platoon J cops, you know, they had all that stuff, to the unit replacing them, were moved back to the airport, were getting ready to get on airplanes when the extension came out. Everybody got extended three months. And so they went from 12 months to 15 months, and he ended up staying there 16 months. And, you know, as, as he famously says, their give a shit factor went down pretty hard at that point. Yeah. Morale was pretty bad. So I mean, you know, the, my last guest, who, who was a ranger, he, they, they, they're short of deployments. So, yeah. and, and us in the UK, we only, we only do six-month deployments, seven if you, you're, you're unlucky. But I guess with <laughs> a, big, a big clog like the, the U.S. military, they, they – through, I guess through costing and everything yeah. like that. That's why they go for. How, how was it? How obviously I know you joined and you knew it. You knew that it was going to be year deployment, but especially going before your second deployment to um, Iraq, you you'd been married at this point, haven't you? And just had a kid. Yeah. How was that going yeah. away? How were you? How did you feel before going away? Then were you just been married? Um, got a kid. So I was I was fortunate. I had been married. I married a very strong woman, very independent woman. She and I both got, you know, we were older. I was like 31 when we got married. She was 36. Um, she hadn't been previously married. So I knew I had a strong marriage. But I also, the stories you were hearing about the guys coming back from a year in Iraq and they come back to an empty house and the banking account's been emptied out. And I knew mm. people that it happened to. I mean, one guy came back, and I remember him coming into the work the next day. He's like, she even took the fucking ice trays out of the refrigerator. <laughs> and, I mean, that was the level of stories that were going on. And so I didn't worry about that too much. Um, I was pretty confident um, in my marriage at that point. 
Um, but I knew I was going to have a lot of that in my unit, and we did. Mm. We had a lot of drama, especially the young kids who get married at like 18, 19 years yeah. old, and a lot of drama with that. And that would be stressful. I mean, you'd be out on a patrol, and some kids, you know, in 07, 08, we had cell phones, we had easy email access, and so you come off a four-day op, you go back in there, and then suddenly, you know, so-and-so's found out that he's got a, a Gmail Dear John letter. You know, and he's just been dumped and she's taking the kid and she's leaving and she cleaned out his checking account. Now you got this kid going out and, you know, we had a 2003, not my unit, but our sister unit had a suicide when we were deployed. Actually, had two suicides. Um, and then we had in 07, 08, we had a suicide um, where people couldn't have, I mean, our, our brigade surgeon committed suicide our first week there. And we were like, whoa, what the hell are we getting ourselves into at this point when a senior doc shoots herself? <laughs> um, and that was that was a lot of stress. I and mean, we had guys that would break down and just, you know, and then at that point, 2007, 2008, we had a lot of guys, they were on their third role. Mm. You know, they were, they'd already had 24 months between Afghanistan and Iraq. And, you know, they were... Families were hitting the point where that's it. I can't take this shit anymore. Mm. And the army really had, had trouble with that because it was one year deployed, one year back, one year deployed, one year back. But that one year back, you're training. Mm. You're getting ready to go out the door. I mean, you're, you're not spending long weekends with the family. You're spending a lot of time out in the woods and, you know, preparing and going through training, going to different training centers to get ready. And so, of that year, you're back. In reality, you're only really on a semi-normal schedule for nine months. Mm-hmm. And then you're gone for 12 months. And you have email, and we had some VoIP phones that you could call back through with satellite phones and stuff like that. But still, that's a lot of stress for marriages. Yeah. A lot of stress and, for marriages. And like, like you said, like likewise, in the UK, there's a lot of people that get married just so they can get pads. And they, they get yeah, married. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <you know? laughs> It doesn't, when it you doesn't, get married, in the, I was gonna say when you get married, in the US, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I go make go. <laughs> I was gonna say in the American army, when you get married, you get this uh, additional rations. We call it BAH, mm-hmm. and so the joke is that you know I have BAH and I have healthcare, <laughs> and that, <laughs> that's how the soldiers are luring to get a young girl to marry them, kind of thing. And so that, that's the joke, and yeah, a lot of that goes on. Yeah, so. and, and and a lot of it in the UK is. You know, they get they get misses in 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 Civvy Street, and then they can't see them all the time. So they're like, "Fuck it, let's just get married," and then I can see you all the time. And then you know, that doesn't end well because it, it starts a guest starts a relationship off on the wrong foot, and then that's where a lot oh, yeah. of issues come for. And you see a lot of people struggling mentally, especially when they're away. Yeah, definitely. Um, and. Uh... You know, and, and then it's the whole talk about the mental health thing. And I think you find out who who's your strong people at that point, you know, and who is. There's an analogy I heard a long, long time ago that I think I tie it into is that everybody is born with a glass. And some people get the big yard of beer and some people get the shot glass. Mm-hmm. And, but everybody is somewhere in between there. And so we get all these stressors come in. Does your little shot glass overflow and then you have problems or you get the guy who's the big yard of beer who can take it all, but eventually it's going to overflow. And I think then um, 
it was such back and forth, back and forth that those glasses were filling up so quick. There was not enough time to drink it off. Yeah. And so we had a lot of cases, a lot of cases. I mean, I, I, we came back, I remember in 08, got off the plane and I had three soldiers who my first sergeant had to find rooms in the barracks because their wives, one, one wife served them paperwork for divorce at the welcome home ceremony. Oh, she, yeah, she was a special person. Um, and the other two, they never showed up. And so we had to put these kids into the barracks. I say kids, but young soldiers into the into the barracks who now thought they were going to be met by their wife. And now they're in the barracks. And so one of them broke down. We had to put him in uh, psychiatric care. Uh, I had a soldier, uh, Sergeant Neary, who was a good soldier, who mentally broke down. Not His wife stuck with him. But all the stress had built up. He'd been in Alaska and deployed to Afghanistan. He'd been in Iraq twice. Came back and he mentally broke. And we put him into uh, therapy. And then he was down in a private hospital seeking care. And his wife went to pick him up. And between picking him up and bringing him home, he committed suicide. You know, he was an E5. Um, young, young kid, great guy. Just that level of stress i mean you would see people that would just you know you could tell but then you get that culture of bravado mm. you know the military tries hard now to break it down i think from what i've heard from my peers but still you know I mean, if you went up to someone and say hey man you doing all right you know in 2003 four like say i'm a wimp <laughs> you know or that or you know yeah. what's wrong someone breaks down they're gone their career's over they're destroyed yeah. and it was mental health was a big stigma big yeah. stigma yeah you know so yeah and so we got to iraq in august of 07 for my second deployment that's when i was attached to the infantry unit i was a fire support officer so i would coordinate the cannon rocket missile helicopter support stuff like that and our first week there in Iraq, our, one of our companies, uh, Charlie Company, um, my buddy Mike McGaffigan commanded them. And their first patrol with the unit they were replacing, they went out the gate, they got 100 yards down the road, hit a deep buried IED that blew the front off one of their Humvees, completely took it away. All four of their guys got you know messed up pretty good. Um, and they put them on a helicopter and they medevaced them out. Well, two of the guys had just been shake, shook up really good. Um, and they ended up bringing them back about a week later. And they both were like, nope, not going out the wire, not doing it. And uh, there was no combat stress. To, you know, the, the, I, remember, I remember in the operations center, the talk was the colonel saying, well, let's send the chaplain out to talk to him. <laughs> you know, there was serious talk about it. these guys like, nope, not going out. I should have died. That should have been it. And, um, one of them eventually, if I remember correct, went, started to do patrols again. The other guy's like, I don't care. And the unit brought him back into the operations center, and he did some stuff and helped. So there was no talk at court martial or anything like that, but he was done at that mm-hmm. point. I mean, he was personally done. He was like, I'm getting out. When I get back, that's it. I'm through. Um, he was a staff sergeant. So he, he, he was in his career path. It wasn't mm-hmm. like he joined up four years for college money. Um, but at that point, everybody talked. Yeah, right, wrong, or different. Even those guys, you know, should have been vaporized <laughs> by a split second. You know, they should have all died. But 
Um, and so I think back to that at times about how that reaction was. And I wondered at the time, and I don't really remember how I felt about it because I was so busy with other stuff, whether I made that judgment of, you know, did I support them or not? And that's something I've thought about. And then when I became a commander six months later, as a because in the American Army, we, we typically a company commander as a captain as opposed mm-hmm. to the British military where as a major. Yeah. Uh, I took over a battery. Um, but we weren't cannons sitting on a, on a giant fob somewhere pointed down south. We were ad hoc infantry working with three Iraqi army battalions that were guarding the pipeline from attacks. And uh, I had two Iraqi army battalions, and I had one battalion that was technically Iraqi army, but it was actually Kurdish Peshmega. Mm-hmm. So I spent most of my time keeping the keep trying to prevent the Kurds from attacking the Iraqi army units because <laughs> they were convinced they were all insurgents. Yeah. Um, and then we started to have our ID strikes and we had some firefights and stuff like that and some car bomb attacks and stuff like that. And so um, that was kind of ad hoc infantry where I more ex- experienced a lot more of the, you know, the stuff. But as a, as a, as a captain, I wasn't stacking on the side of a wall being the first man in into mm-hmm. a room or something like that. You know, you're controlling the fight with your radios, you're talking to the helicopters, you're talking to your platoon leaders and stuff like that. And uh, so it's a little different. But, you know, we, we had guys getting killed. I mean, one of my peers on a road hit an IED, and like I said, he lost his eye, part of his nose, tore up his face really good, killed his driver. Um, so there was that threat there still, but... You know, and then you think about it, and I think I'm fortunate. I am that guy who stress level has a bigger glass than the average bear. Yeah. But everybody's glass overfills at some point. You know, I don't – I also think I have some healthy coping mechanisms that some of my peers that are having a lot of problems don't. But I didn't see as much as a lot of people, but I saw more than others. So it's one of those judgment factors, you know. Yeah. But let, let, let's go into the fact that you know you were your, for your second deployment. You were you were mm-hmm. an infantry. You were infantry fire support. Help, but let, let's go from the being a commander, seeing your troops, your your lads, experiencing the combat. And how how did you see they change throughout the deployment? Um. So I actually I took over. Five and a half months into the deployment, I took over this artillery battery. Mm-hmm. Um, so I hadn't seen them when they first showed up mm-hmm. um, and the new kids and how they reacted and stuff. But I know the infantry unit I was with, you seen the guys. And, you know, when, when we started having medevacs come in to pick up our guys who'd been hurt. And once, you know, the military gossips like a bunch of old ladies at a bridge club, we used to say. And so when someone got hurt, everybody knew yeah. something Hey, Charlie Company had a had a you know an, an IED incident, or when uh, Delta Company had an IED strike that killed our had, that we had our first KIA off of. Everybody talked about it. A KIA being killed in action, you know. I hey, Hal got killed. You know, and you'd hear about these discussions and stuff, and so you'd watch people. And we had a lot of guys like, well, it's the army, it's combat zone. They were on their second or third deployment. They like it happens. It, it was to be expected. Um, and then you have a lot of the newer guys, like, you know, the kind of the shit, I, I it, it wasn't real to them. And you kind of yeah. watch that. Um, and then when I took over my battery, I was fortunate. I didn't have anyone when I was a battery commander get killed. Mm-hmm. Um, I had some guys get wounded, had a lot of guys get blown up. 
um, in IEDs that would hit the vehicle and they get shaken up and, you know, they, um, had a couple guys get, uh, wounded that way. But, um, you know, as it went on and on and on, the biggest impact we would see is you'd have an IED strike and, you know, it shattered the vehicle and everyone come out and go, holy shit, that was lucky. And then guys like, but what's the point? I drive this route three times a week and uh, I'm doing a presence control to make sure that some asshole doesn't go put an IED in here, but I'm not here all the time. And so there was a lot of questioning that started to go on. Um, and so as a commander, I had to, all right, this is why this matters. Yeah. And then you have that bait in your head. Does it really matter? And, you know, in 2007, 2008, you're four or five years into this. Everybody thought we'd be there a year. You know, and there's no end in the horizon. And you're having conversations with your buddies going, man, I really hope my kid doesn't have to come over and deal with this shit. Mm. You know, that kind of stuff. Because nobody saw an end game to Iraq at that point. And we were doing the same things again and again. It wasn't changing. You know, there's a, uh, a joke about the definition of insanity is doing the same thing again and again and again and expecting a different result. Yeah. And that was the frustration. And so I came out of my second deployment I had about a two-week period there where I seriously contemplated getting out of the military. Yeah. And so at that point, 2008, I had what? I had 11 active years. So I was halfway to a military pension at that point because we we vest in our retirement at 20 years. You get 20 years, you get 50% of your base pay for the rest of your life. Uh, so it's really it's a pretty good retirement system. At 11 years, though. You know, once you hit that 10, 10 year mark, everyone's like, well, I'm halfway there. You know, might as well stay in. But I was so frustrated and just seeing senior level officers that it was kind of the evaluation game. Well, I got to get this. I got to check this block to do this. Okay, we did this. I do this. I do this. I do this. I'll get promoted. And you'd see that. And so not wanting to fall into that trap. I don't think anybody wakes up, anyone who's a decent person wakes up in the morning and says, this is what I'm going to do to be promoted. I don't give a damn what it does. But if you're part of the system, you see yourself falling in line with that system and being corrupted by it. And so that was a huge dilemma that we had. We had a lot of guys who are, you know, you're getting ready to come back from deployment. Guys are jockeying to get jobs outside of a combat arms tactical unit because they they needed a break. They'd been to Iraq three times at that point. They had 36 months away from their family, their kids, and they wanted to go to a training center or go be an ROTC instructor at a university for two years or go be a drill sergeant, which a drill sergeant is one of the most stressful jobs that we have for a lot of your non-commissioned officers because they're working with basic training privates. That's its own level of frustration. But they would that was better than deploying again. But by the same accord, when you go to those units, you'd think about how can I get to my next unit to deploy because you kind of miss it. Yeah. It's this catch-22 weird feeling. And so um, you'd see that change. You'd watch people run through those range of emotions, you know. Yeah, and, and I guess the, 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 the year deployment just must. Yeah. Um, I guess, what, what do you see from the, because obviously you work with the British military did you ever work while you were deployed in iraq i did i went down to basra 
So it was like August. Yeah, it was August of 03. We flew down on a Chinook, a British Chinook helicopter from Baghdad down to Basra. And we, we landed at the, the um, Baghdad airport or the, the Basra, uh, right outside the international airport where the, the Brits had set up their headquarters in there and all that. We go in there and we are working to gather all this captured enemy ammunition and bring it together. And they were compiling in this big area and they were trying to figure out how to destroy it. We were coming down there to help them destroy it. So we were down there for like a week in a planning session and meeting with them. The first thing we noticed is, uh, a, they were in the airport and they had very, very, very nice. They had air conditioning inside the building. We're like, man, you guys got AC? This is great. But um, they also, you know, the British Army, you, know, you guys aren't going anywhere without your beer. And so they'd have beer calls and we were all dry. We're not allowed to drink. You know, uh, we're allowed to carry guns and shoot people, but you can't have a beer. Um, <laughs> you know, so there's this difference in culture there. But we noticed, I think, that they were a lot more in tune with the long-term aspect of the problem. I think they had looked at it, whether you want to call it your, you know, the, the problem in Northern Ireland had created this very introspective culture that when you start messing with somebody else, you're not getting out of there quick. And so they all were like, this is a long game. They're like, ah, no, we'll be there for a year, maybe two. And they're like, no, no one's getting out of here quick. Um, so I remember that those discussions with them talking about that, but then, um, they had a lot of appreciation for, we just had every piece of kit you could imagine. Mm. And we had all this stuff and, you know, the British military was pretty lean, I would say, and very austere. And so, um, we started noticing stuff started disappearing when we had our first units come down for our vehicles, our kit started getting liberated, as we call it. You know, the, they say, watch out for the Brits. They've got five-finger discount. You know, they'll, they'll <laughs> fight the good stuff. Yeah. Um, but uh, I remember going out to a porta potty because the plumbing didn't work in the airport. And uh, it's kind of funny thing. You know, the porta potties we used to say, was the true test of morale. You could tell what was going on in a unit by reading all the crap that was written on the walls and the, and the porta potties and I go to this porta potty, and it's this long tirade of you know a British soldier who's like, "This is stupid. This is fucking bloody hell." I mean, blah blah blah, all this stuff, laying it all out. And then somebody at the bottom put, "Yeah, mate, it could be worse. We could be the Yanks." <laughs> I was like, "Hmm, valid point." <laughs> you know, yeah. so it was. But we had a good interaction with them. I mean, we, yeah, they they would steal our shit if we turned our eyes. You know, if we didn't keep our eyes on it. But it was. Um, you know, they weren't going in and stealing your Walkman. They were lifting a case right. of MRE in the back of your vehicle. It wasn't anything personal. It was about, you know, our motto in the Army is there's no thief. There's, there's everybody trying to get their shit back. So, um, <laughs> but yeah, that was my interaction with the Brits. You know, very uh, professional. Uh, I know, like, one of the questions you asked me is about the difference between UK officers or a lot more posture. Which I'm going to take that is to be more refined, maybe, or a little bit more. Um, uh, well, I guess in the UK we've got um, the the class system's different, as in yeah. You, I guess it's it's not different, but I mean, uh, I guess the accents, the accents, yeah. and the 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 way officers are handling themselves, you can. Yeah, uh, we so we had a British parachute. 
regiment officer at our brigade headquarters. I can't remember his name. I've been trying to remember his name. I actually emailed some guys and he was, uh, he was an interesting cat. I remember one time we were up there and uh, there was a big discussion going on and somebody made the comment, yeah, when you make Lieutenant Colonel, and he goes, no, I'll never make Lieutenant Colonel. I'm not from the right family lines. Major is as high as I will go. And they, you know, people were like laughing. Ha ha. And he's like, no, I'm dead serious. He goes, you have to have the right connections. And that was, that was, he was, dead serious about that and I, I thought that was interesting that and, and Stu had kind of mentioned that that yes you can be the guy that makes it by merit but it's a lot harder because there's a lot of guys that daddy was a colonel and daddy was a general and so there's a lot of that what we call coattail riding that goes on he said that's more prevalent especially as small as the British Army is right now it, um, so. if, if you're a, if you're a, the, the, the biggest one is if you're household cavalry or the or a guardsman if you're an officer in the guard, the the rule was you had to have. In mind, one of my guests explained to me is if the if you to join the guards to be an officer, you have to have a second income or like mm -hmm. a backup family family yeah. wealth, you know, in case you don't get paid by the queen. So in order oh, to survive, man. so that, that's the kind of level. And household household cavalry is pretty much the same. You, you're not you're not being an officer unless you're your dad well, was an officer or you're well connected yeah. or you're an aristocrat or something like that. Um, and that's one thing that there's been some talk in the, in the United States about is this, we call it the military civilian divide. Um, and so the military being a volunteer military is there's, it's now granted, you know, the United States, there's 335 million people or something like that. Um, it's more uncommon to meet people these days than it used to be who've served in the military or know somebody. So as an example, when I retired, I moved down to Overland Park, Kansas. I was down in Fort Hood, Texas. And we moved up here. And there are not many people around who served in the military. Or if I run into people that served in the military, it's the National Guard, it's the Reserve. Um, but it's not too common. So you meet a lot of people that don't know anything about the military, mm. where if you think about it with people in the military, especially among the officer corps, my dad was in the Air Force. My dad did 27 years in the Air Force. I always knew I was going to join the, the military. I just didn't know which branch. Um, I have a lot of friends that are that way. Their dads, their granddads were in the military. And a lot of our granddads served during World War II. Um, I have a commander of mine that I served under three times. He's a three-star general out at 8th Army in Korea. He's, you know, uh, Lieutenant General um, Willard Burleson. His dad was retired two-star. His son is an officer in the Army, went to West Point. And so you're starting to see more and more of what they call the uh, military class developing, mm -hmm. where a lot of families are stacking. And so a lot of my friends... Uh, one of my friends, Rick Pryor, his son enlisted in the army yesterday. He was, put it on Facebook. Here's my kid taking the oath of office. And Rick's dad was in the military. And so you're starting to see this develop. And it's the discussion that's that's coming out of there is, is this healthy? Mm. You know, I, I, there's talk. Should we bring the draft back so the average citizen knows what it's like? I personally don't think that's sustainable, but that's discussions you're running into. But when you're getting out of the military, like when I was retiring, I don't know what your experience was the, when you got out of the service was, thank you for your service. But, you know, everybody had this image of 
oh, I'm going to get out. I'm going to get a job because I'm a veteran. I have these skills. Everybody's going to want to hire a veteran. And you find out that, no, they don't. You get thank you for your service. But do you have these qualifications? Mm -hmm. Can you prove this on your resume or your CV that you have this capability? Or you're starting to run now into the everybody's damaged. You know, so I'm a scoutmaster of a Boy Scout troop at a Catholic church, not Catholic, but down the street from us. And when I joined the, Catholic, the, the troop with my son, and I've been a Boy Scout leader for years, I, this, this community service thing I did, I'm, I'm an Eagle Scout, which is our highest ranking in, in Boy Scouts. So I've been doing it since I was like eight. Um, I joined this troop and they were asking me, some of the dads were asking me about, hey, what, what do you do? And I was like, oh, I work for Honeywell. I'm project manager, but I've only been there about a year at this point. I, I was in the army for 23 years before that. And uh, I was approached about three meetings later by one of the dads who was like, hey, we've had a mother who's expressed concern. I need to know, do you have PTSD? And I was like, seriously? I was like, uh, all right. So we had a sit down. And I have friends of mine that are leaders in the troop with me, with these boys who I know their kids real well, who initially were concerned that I wanted to become the scoutmaster because they thought they were getting a drill sergeant coming in, or I was this deranged veteran that would be, you know, bringing a handgun on a, on a camping trip and firing it off in my underwear, drunk howling at the moon or something like that. And mm. so you're running into that more and more. And as I'm, one of the things I do is people that are interested in working where I work, I, Hey, send me your resume. I'll look at it. I'll help you with that. And I'll demilitarize and you talk to them about it. And as you talk with your peers at work, it's that disconnect is, you know, it, it's pretty significant, it, especially it with career military officers. They have a hard time letting it go. That's their identity, you know? But the thing is, as well, is that, I guess that, that Hollywood perception of a veteran that, that, mm -hmm. that doesn't that doesn't help a lot yeah. of veterans you know people yeah. people do there's people that struggle and a lot of veterans struggle but a lot of veterans struggle not not because of the stuff they've seen because of they're trying to become a normal civilian you know that yeah. that's where a lot of the struggle is is there's yes you know a lot of people people do suffer from ptsd and that that is a that is a common you know that is a something that people suffer from you know, there's a study that's it's only it's there's a study that seven point four percent of seven point four percent of veterans suffer from PTSD. Now, I think that personally, I think that's quite high. I, I don't think that's a you know a correct study. Um, but even if so, you know, that's still ninety five out of a hundred that not ninety three out of a hundred people that don't suffer from PTSD that are going off this stigma that you know if you go, oh, you're a veteran, oh, are you are you okay? It's like, well, no. I'm the, you don't need to come into that that's not a that's not an issue and that's how people struggle to then get into the workforce yeah. they don't get don't get seen in the right light and that's where you know a lot of people struggle with that yeah i had a, a good friend of mine who i met through scouts now and he never served in the military and um you know a couple of days ago he finally asked me he's like hey ken i, I gotta ask you ever shot somebody yes i have and then, you know, the whole questions of, you know, what was it like? And I was like, you know, we talked about it over a beer. And it was this, but it took him two years to ask that. But then I've been in a situation where you meet somebody at work or you meet somebody over a, a, a beer. Oh, I was in the army for 20. Oh, you ever kill somebody? And that comes out like that. Mm. And you're like, seriously, I don't know you. But then 
for two years, Dave had this question in his mind, and he wondered and thought and asked about it. And, you know, it's it's that communication factor. I, I don't think about it. I mean, I did. I didn't. I was one of like 20 guys that shot at this cat. You know, we all got him. <laughs> but, uh, you know, when you, when you throw an RKG-3 anti-tank grenade at us, you tend to get our attention. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's not something that bothers me. But I've got my brother, who was a machine gunner in an infantry unit, who is bothered by one of the guys he shot. That, it, mm. And I think a lot of that's... Uh, I don't know the psychiatrists don't like to hear this, but I think a lot of it's the DNA. Some people, maybe I'm just more cold blooded and I, my, my glass is bigger than the next guy and I can blow it off. You know I mean? I mean, the first time I saw a guy that, you know, my unit had killed, looked at him and medic and is he dead? Yeah, he's dead. Okay. Next move on. We were doing our thing, you know, and, but the Iraqis bag him and tag him and stuff like that. Um, but he'd been shooting at us. So, you know, he got what he deserved, but other people don't look at it that way. But then when you have that conversation with most people, when they bring it up, they go back to the Hollywood stereotype of the nut job, mm. you know, or you get the stolen valor guys that, you know, you find out he was a mechanic who never left the fob. Yeah. And he's, or, you know, there's a guy I know who was an air force meteorologist did a mission he supported the military. He had his job. Great to it. Sorry, it wasn't the cool guy factor that maybe you feel it should be. But you talk to him. He was, you know, he was in the shit. Mm-hmm. And, but it's just that that you know. It, it, how do you navigate that? You know, and I've got a neighbor that I'm sure she's convinced that I am guarding the house at night, walking around with a you know an AR-15 and night vision goggles and ready to kill her kid if he steps into the front lawn, which. And she just looks at me like I'm crazy, and I don't do anything like that. So, um, you know. at, least, at least they're not going to try and rob your house. So. No, no, I'll put a sign that you know they they don't have guns in their house. Go there, um, <laughs> you know. But it, and then I think also, you know, when you think about how you, how you deal with stress, and you think about stuff, and you have bad times, you know. Um, one of the things I did that I think make my, makes my marriage stronger is that when I was dating my wife, I met her, I said, two weeks after I came back from Iraq, my first deployment. And when I knew pretty quick that I am pretty sure I'm going to marry this gal, um, we had a sit down and I had my laptop and I said, hey, these are things that I've seen. Here's pictures of, you know, the Italian um, police officers that got blown up by a suicide bomber that we responded to and I helped pick up body parts from, you know, um, and stuff like that. Here is this suicide bomber who hugged the Bradley 20 feet from me that, you know, parts of his brains and rained down on us. You know, here is this kid who died. This is, these are some other things that we saw and this is vehicles. Hey, this is what my Humvee looked like after we hit this IED and it peppered the side of the, the vehicle before we had armor. You know, I had a, hole through this about that big that came through the panel right behind my head i never heard that piece of metal go by me but obviously it went like three inches mm-hmm. behind my head you know and so talk about that and so when i get stressed i talk and i talk yeah. to my wife i think that's helped me but there's a lot of cats you know that don't do that they bottle it up yeah. and i think it tears them up i think you know that's just something i've always 
been a little thankful for, I guess, maybe. And, and that's one of the reasons why I started this podcast is, you know, my, my, my belief is, you know, it's, it's about, I'm very lucky. I'm, I, I serve my brother like yourself, but me and him were in the same, same unit. We deployed in the same tour. Um, but we, you know, we, we spoke about things. So when we came back, but it's some people that come back from, from wartime, they don't want to speak. They don't, haven't got, especially in the UK. I don't know if the same, same in America. But you you come back and you're in a, you've got your weekends off. Um, if you're based in the UK, you tend everyone tends to go home for the weekend because UK is a lot smaller. And you could be based in London, but people from Newcastle, which is a four or five hour drive, they're still yeah. going home. They're still going home for the weekend or Manchester. Yeah. But then when you're home with your civvy mates, your civilian mates, you don't want to talk about it because it's not something you want to shed the light on. And a lot of people then they come back from war, they leave the army, that's all they've ever known, they go back to their civilian mates in Manchester or Newcastle or Birmingham, wherever they live, and they don't want to, they've got no one to talk to, they've got no common ground with people, and that's when, you know, with with no outlet, that's when things can can, can get an issue, and, you know, we've, we're having a lot, of, a lot of issues with suicide at the minute, you know, in the last few years, and it's not, majority of the region is not because ptsd but it's because of other things and like you said that their glass is full and these other things just keep just tip it over and and cause it to become an issue so i was thinking about that and uh counting up so um i know 12 suicides of guys in the military that have died from suicides yeah afterwards one of them Higher ranking as a sergeant major, uh, Sergeant Major Shaday. He, my first deployment, um, he committed suicide while on active duty. And low ranking to a junior enlisted guy who was my driver in Iraq for a long period. I, I had talked to him, talked to him on Facebook, and um, we communicated about a week prior. I was like, "Hey, Brennan, how's everything going? Everything going all right?" And we just you know, he gotten out and talking about different things. He moved back to Houston, and. Um, you know, that I found out about a week later, his mom reached out to me and he had gone and killed himself. And then uh, a lot of my, I don't have any friends in the military who have not known somebody who died from suicide mm-hmm. post-deployment. A couple in the military, but um, every it's, it's a problem. And like you said, I don't think it's the trauma of the war that's tearing these guys up for the most. I think a lot of it's isolation, like you said, or it's the cumulative effect. They don't have, you know, I don't know. And when I counted up the number of people I know who've been killed in action, it's 11 Hmm. um, between the different units. And now the guys I was actually in the unit with that died, that's only five only. I mean, it's horrible, but the other guys I know got killed, um, stuff like that. And then um, I know three guys that have, being killed in training accidents. Um, and so when you look at that, I mean, that's what, 23, 20, 26 guys that I've known have died. I would say your average person that in my neighborhood, if I went outside my house right now, went to the, the, the house next to my, knocked at the door and said, hey, Michelle, how many people do you know that have died? I would challenge them to say 23 people. Yeah that they've served with and stuff. And so you think about that and it tears you up and makes you wonder. And so then 
you know, are the mechanisms out there? And while I made the comment before this thing about, you know, maybe there's too many veterans organizations, I think, but by the same accord, I think the quality of the veterans organizations matters. Like I, I'm an active participant in the veterans of foreign wars. Um, it's a fraternal organization that's been around since like World War One-ish. It was formed after then. Uh, really big for the World War II veterans, the Korean War, and Vietnam veterans. Somewhat Desert Storm, but there's kind of this, it came into this us versus them. I heard a lot of the guys who were in Desert Storm said when they joined the VFW, they got the Vietnam vet saying, well, you didn't really experience the shit, man, because you only had four days of fighting, and I was in Nam for, you know, 13 months or something like that. So it was kind of looking down on you. And then, uh, I and the VFW organization is having a problem with recruiting because there's a lot of younger guys that don't want to go in there and sit at the bar and drink beer and tell war stories. And that is kind of the VFW's perception Mm -hmm. right now. Um, And they're trying hard to break that. We've got the American Legion, similar organization. The Veterans of Foreign Wars, to join, you have to have had a combat deployment of some kind. Mm-hmm. American Legion have to serve in the military. And you have auxiliaries where you can be a supporter who never served and stuff like that. But then there's always we have the military um society for purple hearts. If you have a purple heart, you can join that. Those are organizations and stuff. So they're trying to get the younger generation to join, but they're finding that they're having a hard time connecting with the younger generation mm-hmm. because they don't want to go in a bar and listen to some seventy five year old tell stories about how he was at Quezon in Vietnam. And, you know, the connections aren't the same. And so that's mm-hmm. something that I think is, um, we've talked about it, the veterans group, I mean, I'm a member at work. We have a lot of different experiences. We have guys who never saw combat. And then we have several guys. We got a guy who was a special forces, um, you know, he was special forces for 11 years. He eventually left to go join the FBI. Um, and then you have a whole lot of guys in between, a lot of Air Force guys who, they just maintained airplanes. They never saw any active combat, but they have stressors, mm-hmm. you know, the deployments because they were deployed to Qatar, which, okay, we went to Qatar for R and R rest <laughs> and recreation and, you know, and have a beer and stuff like that, but they were still away from their family yeah. and stuff. But the Air Force guys were doing four or seven month deployments. You know, the Marines were doing nine. The only ones who were close were the Navy. The Navy was getting hit hard with 10, nine and 10 month ship deployments they're not seeing active combat but they're still away from their family mm-hmm. but the army we're eating at 12 16 months the rangers like you talked about them they'll, they only do a four-month deployment a lot of times but they do four months gone back for four months gone and it's and it's tearing them up you know guys i know that have been in those type of organizations they have a lot of stress and they're seeing active combat they're the ones going after you know having direct firefights and all that kind of stuff so and as joe said um you go from an environment where you're training you're jumping out of aircraft doing halo jumps or you're doing all these cool things you know fast roping out out of the helicopters and assaulting and breaching and all this dynamic stuff that's really cool and then you get out and your big dilemma of the day is what time am i going to wear to work or someone stresses out at work and you're like, you don't understand what stress is. No one's throwing hand grenades at us. Yeah. You know, I mean, we've, so I mean, we, we I had think- a meeting one time where someone chucked a grenade at us. That's not something that's going to happen at work, yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know? So, but, but as much as, you know, things like when we go on tour and people in 
the military goes go on tour and things happen and the negative effects when you come home. But there's also some positives that people got to take that. Like when I go to work or whenever I've had an issue outside the army, my, my initial response is, well, fuck it, I'm not going to die. <laughs> no one's going to kill yeah. me. So I'm not getting blown yes. up. So, so like it kind of takes away yeah. the stress of the situation. Yeah. Like, am I, am I going to die? No. Okay, fine. Then we yes. can we can go again. And that's one of the yeah, positive Yeah, definitely comments. agree. Yeah, definitely and, agree. And you, um, did you, how many deployments did you do in Iraq? Was that two? So two two deployments in Iraq, totaling just shy of 27 months. Yeah, so. which is, fuck, that's a long time. <laughs> Fucking hell. Yeah. And then you retired as... Sorry. Sorry, go on, carry on. I have a friend of mine who has four tours in Iraq, three tours in Afghanistan for 78 months. Fuck. In hell, do you yeah. do you get um? So when you're away, do you get in in the UK? You get LSA days, which is um, you, you get a paid extra for when you're away on tour. Yeah, um, we 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 get some different pays. You get family separation pay. It's like two hundred and fifty bucks a month. Um, and then certain up to a certain pay level, you're tax free. Right. So all enlisted are their pay is they do not have any federal income tax taken out. Officers, you have it up to the point of the highest ranking enlisted soldier's salary because mm-hmm. a lot of us make more. Um, and so that's tax free. And then your vacation time, we get 30 days a year, but it can roll up to 60 days. They extend that. So you could actually go 90 days. And I knew some cats are at 120 days mm-hmm. of vacation you could save up. So it, but the problem was you could have this vacation. Could you take it? That was the more of the crux, especially as an officer, because you're training for this exercise and this. And I had a boss who said, we called it leave. Um, you need to take your leave on the weekend so you burn it up so you don't you, you don't lose it. Because if you lose it, it looks bad to the unit. You know, the higher level generals like, why are these guys losing vacation? And so my boss was like, you need to take vacation on the weekends. Uh, no, I'm not. And he and I had a head-to-head over that one. I, I consider that a classic side of crappy leadership he wasn't a very good guy but you know not all bosses are great no no <laughs> good one of them you get good ones you get some bad ones oh um, yeah. yeah and then you did you retired at 23 years as a major yeah i did yeah so i, I had my uh, six years as enlisted time and then i was 17 years as an officer um i was coming up on promotion for lieutenant colonel but uh 2013 i developed a really rare bone marrow illness and so I was pending a medical retirement separation and I just, I, I could retire. So when I got to the 20 years of active service that you need to retire, I just dropped my paperwork. And mm-hmm. um, they were at that time, they were trying to get guys to stay in longer. They were offering what's called selective continuation. So even if you weren't selected for prom- promotion, we get two looks basically. Uh, well, actually three, you have a below zone look where you're looked at a little early Um Less than 5% get selected for that for promotion as an officer. Mm-hmm. You have your standard look, and then you have an above zone look. If you don't make promotion on those two looks, since you're gone, you got to retire or get out if you don't have the retirement time. Um, but they were offering guys the opportunity to stay in. Well, because I had gotten so sick, and I'm something I will deal with for the rest of my life, I, I couldn't stay in because, A, I had a lot of medications. There's a lot of things I couldn't do. And I was ready to go at that point. You know, yeah. I was that guy, if I can't do the job right, I'm not going to impact my family. You know, I had, 
I had a nine-year-old son at that point. Nine? No, when I retired, so he was, no, I'm sorry, he was 11. But I had already missed cumulative about two years of his life yeah. between deployments and train-ups and everything else. I was working 60-hour weeks. Um, it was time to go. And so, fortunately, in the military, like I said, we get 2.5% of your base pay for every active year you serve, up to 20. Yeah. And then at 20 is when you're vested. So that was a good security blanket, you know. And then I also get health care through them, too. So um, so it's time to go. Fair enough. And, yeah. you know, how did you find leaving? You've done, you, you, you know, you're a major, mm-hmm. um, you know, you said you've got a job, you know, you work at, you're a project manager right. now. But how did you initially find leaving the military? So I consider myself a little fortunate in the sense that when I got sick in 2013, I was in Korea. I was at what we call a key developmental job. One of those jobs you have to do to get promoted and you have to do well. And so by leaving that job when I did, when the medic, when the docs were like, this is serious, this needs to happen. I knew at that point my career was over. I was not going to get promoted. My career had self-destructed at that point. So I had time while the military was trying to figure out what was going on before I retired. So I, I had four years, actually about three years before I dropped my paper, my retirement paperwork to figure out and recognize and accept that my career was over. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think that helped me a lot because I was able to figure out what I wanted to do. I said, okay, well, I need to go get a master's degree. So I hadn't done that, even though a lot of my peers had. So I went and got an MBA during that time frame. Um, and I tried to figure out where do I want to live. And so I had that set up. Now, that being said, but one of my friends, uh, you know, three days ago found out that he has to retire as a lieutenant colonel. Um, he was planning to do another three years, but they offered him. They said, hey, this is where you got to go for your next assignment, because we typically would move every two to three years. If you don't like it, retire. Mm-hmm. And he's not willing to go there and his family's not willing to go there. And so when you decline uh, a assignment change, you have nine months until you're out. Right. And he's done nothing to prepare for retirement. Mm. He doesn't know where they want. They don't know where they They're not really sure where they want to live. He's not really sure what he wants to do. And while he'll have a retirement that will help, you know, with the cost a little bit um, or his expenses, it's not enough to put two kids through college and live the quality of life he's become accustomed to. Mm-hmm. And he's freaking out. And I see a lot. And I'm, you know, I'm like, hey, Lee, I'm going to work with you. We'll work on your resume. We'll work on interviews. We'll all this. But he's still not really sure what he wants to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I see a lot of that. It, it depends. And I think a lot of guys, you know, if, if you enlist, you enlist for four years, you know, at four years, I have an end to the window. Mm-hmm. I'm getting out of four years unless I decide to stay longer. Well, as an officer, you serve at the pleasure, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And so at some point, you have to recognize that your time's done. And a lot of guys don't work that. And they think about it, and they work themselves up until, like, their last three months. Like, okay, I'm going to get out and get my, I'm going to get this great job. And it's not there because it's, <laughs> thank you for your service. But are you really qualified to do this? Yeah. You know, we don't need to hire people that can lob an artillery shell 18 miles away and kill people. <laughs> Mom's not hiring, you know, that kind of stuff. So um, I see a lot of stress, a lot yeah. of stress among my friends that way, because based upon my age and time I served, all my friends are retiring now, yeah. um, unless they're a general officer. And it's only one of those that's done that. Um, and so there's 
lot of stress, you know, and a lot of their backup plans. Well, I'll go be a school teacher. Well, COVID's going on right now. Not a lot of school teacher hirings going on. Yeah. And you know, the job market here is not doing well because everyone's kind of sitting and waiting back. And so there's a lot of people who, a lot of stress. Fuck. Yeah. I mean, you know, and one of, one of the big things that lads do is struggle, especially people that have done 15 years or so or more, you know, get out and where do they go from here? Yeah. It's their identity. Yeah. And then also for senior officers, you're now in a position of authority that comes with, by nature, your rank. And you're going into a civilian company where they don't understand that or you don't have that authority or even what I noticed a lot at work is, so example, my boss worked, was in the army for eight years. He's 32 years old. You know, I'm 40, I'll be 47 in May. And so I personally don't have a problem working for me, someone who's younger than me. But one of the guys that just showed up to work is retired Lieutenant Colonel who knew my boss when they were stationed in Hawaii together, when he was a junior captain and my buddy was Lieutenant Colonel. And so he's having a hard time separating away that now his boss mm. is a guy who used to work for him that is substantially younger and difference in rank. And you don't have that authority. I mean, so it's, there's a guy at work who's a retired colonel. I mean, full colonel. He was a brigade commander. He had all these 5,000 people under his command. Has the same job I do. And I never commanded more than, you know, 104 guys. So, and he talks about it. You know, this and that. Doesn't matter now. Honeywell doesn't care. You're in, you're in you Simi know. Street now, mate. <laughs> exactly. And they have a lot of problems with that. And mm. there's a lot of investment issues that go on with that. Like I said, I was fortunate, but... I wasn't fortunate to get sick the way I did, but it gave me time to think. Yeah. And so I didn't go through that. It gave me time to plan. But a lot of guys don't do it because they work up until their last 90 days. Yeah. And then, you know, it's the outside world doesn't care. They say they do, but they don't. Yeah. I mean, and one of the things I've said before is one of my, I don't know if it's the same with in the States with the National Guard, but I, I honestly believe that when people join the Army and when they leave the military, sorry, it should be a requirement you do because in, in the British Army, you have to do a minimum of four years. You have mm -hmm. to give a year's notice to leave um, with the officer. I think it's similar. You, and then you get extended, blah, blah, blah. Um, but you, you could join the Army. You sign on for a 22-year career, um, but you have to do four. You could stay for 22, but mm -hmm. you have to do four. But if you do four years, let's say, you have to then give a minimum of two and a half, no, let's say two years or four years, in the in the TA in the reserves, or if you do fifteen years, you have to do a minimum of one year. You get out and you struggle, like because I know I struggled when I left the from, left the army, and I and I look back on it. The last thing I wanted to do was join the reserves because I thought like that I was I don't want to do it back, but it probably would have helped me massively, and I think it would help a lot of people, you know. And and think think about how good of a reserve force it would be. Like think how good yeah. the National Guard would be if everyone who left the, the army or the military had to then do, you know, even if they do three weekends a year in the National Guard, you know, you know what I mean? They're still going to yeah. give a lot of experience to that National Guard and same with the TA. So, yeah. So for us, when you join the military, if you enlist for four years or you're commissioned as an officer, you owe a minimum of eight years. Mm -hmm. So if you do four years active, you owe four years in reserves. Now that can be 
what we call the individual ready reserve. You're not getting paid anything. You're just there if they need to call you up. And yeah. during the middle of Iraq in 2005, they started calling guys out of the IIR, as we call it, the individual ready reserve, who hadn't done anything in the military for like three, four years. And a lot of guys would extend that. And so that was a rude shock for a lot of them. Um, but a lot of guys I know, I, I have several friends that got out, went and joined the National Guard. But for Iraq and Afghanistan, we had a lot of National Guard. We had a lot of reserve deployments. Mm. And even then, we had a lot of deployments that used to be that everyone, you know, before Iraq and Afghanistan, everyone was fighting to go to Kosovo because it was an operational mission or it was, you know, go to Bosnia or go to the Sinai and support that kind of thing. And um, when the active army was full up in Iraq and Afghanistan, we had a lot of the National Guard guys were going to the Sinai or going to Kosovo and doing those rotations and stuff like that. And then a lot of them went to Iraq. I mean, one of the guys in my uh, VFW post, um, he's actually our VFW commander. He, uh, three tours in Iraq with the National Guard. Mm-hmm. And so these are guys that had to place their civilian job on hold to deploy and, um, would go in there and do different missions and stuff like that and then come back. But they didn't do every other year. A lot of them, it was deployed and three years later, get another deployment. So that was more sustainable for a lot of them. Mm. And they knew a lot of the same people. They'd been in the same unit with these guys for like 15 years. And you had guys that were, you know, professional sergeants. That's all they ever wanted to be was a sergeant. They didn't want to do anything else. Um, And, and so they had a lot of the camaraderie and that family connection. By the same accord, when they lose somebody, it was it hurt more for them, they would say, yeah. because they'd known that guy for 15 years. Not to say that, you know, uh, losing a soldier in the other in the active units didn't hurt, but you maybe known them for a year or two, unless you had some yeah. other connection. So, But I agree. That, that, that is something to consider there as an option. But we have a lot of, a lot of substance abuse problems with guys that get out, a lot of alcoholics. Um, a lot of drugs. Um, my brother is going through uh, alcohol treatment again. Um, his, a lot of his friends, he's had a lot of suicides among his friends um, who served. A lot of, a lot of rests. We have some systems they're setting up now called veterans courts, mm-hmm. where there are courts that are set up to kind of evaluate veterans' cases on a legal perspective. So you're not, you know, like my brother, he got arrested for a thing and uh he's hoping to go to veterans court because they're less likely to throw the book at him as much and right. you know based upon him getting his mental health treatment the anger management treatment the alcohol treatment you know all that other stuff so uh, those are some programs that are that are good now that would have been nice for the older generations the vietnam vets the korean yeah. vets who didn't have that you know mm. so that is a yeah. positive thing there and um since you've got out, is it you? You spoke about the V. Is it V? What's it called? The V. Veterans of Foreign Affairs or Veterans of? Oh, I'm sorry, Veterans of Foreign Wars. Yeah, VFW. Yeah. Sorry, VFW. Mm-hmm. Um, is it is, yeah. so? You do some work for them. Is there any other organizations mm-hmm. or charities that you wanna that that you know of or you work with personally? Um. So there is Red, White, and Blue. It's an organization of veterans that does a lot of athletic events. They try to get people out doing stuff. There's the Wounded Warrior Project. They uh, have they went through a rough trans, tra- uh, transformation. They started off as kind of a 
for-profit money-grubbing organization that's really now doing a lot of good things for the veterans community. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I've, I've helped support some of their projects and events they have. I'm not in leadership in any of these organizations. I, I spend a lot of time with the Boy Scouts, as I said. Um, but when those events come up, I, I actively support. I've gone out to the Veterans Administration, which is our national organization, and ran an archery camp for veterans. Mm -hmm. um, showed some disabled veterans how they can shoot a bow using. Had a gentleman who had no arm, who was missing an arm. Who I, We taught him how to shoot a bow using his one arm and, a and his teeth with awesome. teeth hold. <laughs> stuff like that. Um, when I was in the active army, my last, uh, second to last assignment was with a unit called the Warrior Transition Unit. And uh, I was a major at that time. I was going through my medical process, but I said, hey, I, I got to do something. I'm going crazy. Um, and so I, I this unit, these units were set up to help seriously ill and wounded soldiers as they go through the process, transition, get the medical care they need while not affecting the active combat arms units. So pulling these guys out of those units, they get the treatment. Mm -hmm. I served as a cadre member there, and I uh, ran what we call their adaptive physical conditioning program. Mm -hmm. So we would, hey, you can't just sit there on the couch and get fat. you got to do something, you know, get your mind and your body right. And so we would do these wounded warrior games. Invictus Games is one of the ones that we sent some guys to. We had one of our guys, Chris Park, who went out to that and, met with uh, Prince Harry. I know he's topic of a lot of discussion right now, but uh, so did a lot of stuff with that and, you know, did some air gun training and I'm actually um, talking to the VA about, you know, supporting them on a program, but COVID kind of locked all that down yeah. and I was working on getting into a setup where I would go out and teach archery to veterans for once a week. That's mm -hmm. something I'm working on getting going again as we wait to see what happens between the vaccine and, social distancing and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah. um, but I, I, have, I have some organizations that I work with, but I said, I'm not, I support them with my, my service. I'm not leading anything if that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. So, but, but, it, but it's always good. What I'll do is I'll put, if you, when you finish, yeah. you send me the links to it and then, you know, it's just good for people just to, if they can always yeah. reach out, you know, I don't know how many American yes. people, don't know how many Americans listen to it, but you know, well, I, I know I have four friends who are listening right now that I told them about <laughs> it. One of them, he binged watched. He said it was like better than watching. Look, he thought it was better than watching Games of Thrones. He said minus <laughs> porn, there was no porn involved. Yeah, no um, porn. Yeah, but he yeah. was he, he sat and listened through them all, um, stuff like that. So uh, one thing I'm impressed with is we've been on the call for now two hours ten minutes. Your dog behind you's just kind of woken up and he's just he's been he's been lying lying still for the whole two hours so uh he's actually a unique breed he's a blue lacy it's a texas state dog they're known for hunting and all that they're ex you wouldn't believe it with him being back there they're extremely high energy um he's not demonstrating that right now but he just got back from training i actually used a guy um who's a military working dog handler for the marine corps down in, down in San Antonio. So we drove 11 hours south to take our dog to this guy. And he actually trained service dogs. So I will yeah. give you his information um, for veterans and stuff like that. But he took Louie down there and got him straight because he was uh, getting a little instructive, you know, <laughs> chewing his way out of the kennel and some other yeah. things like that. So, but yeah. Uh, so. Awesome. Awesome, Ken. It's been great talking to you, mate. And yep. I really appreciate you coming on. 
I appreciate everything, Dave, and I, I look forward to listening to this and listening to the flack I'm going to catch from my buddies that listen to the to the uh, <laughs> to the podcast right and stuff like that. I think this is a great service you're doing, and I'll send you those links for sure. Perfect. Thanks very much, Kevin. Thank you. Yes. Have a good night. Bye. And there it was, episode 17. Yeah, you know, I found that interesting, especially learning the intricacies about the American Army, which we never, which I never knew before. I'm sure there's some people that did. Uh, but yeah, it was an interesting chat. As always, you can reach out to me on um, Instagram, Facebook, etc. The Real Podcast, or email me at therealpodcast@gmail.com. And until next time, lay low, move fast, and stay safe. And I'll see you then.